The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Probably an opportune moment to uh, get into Urban Squeeze when we're talking about traffic flow. Fond of our little urban noises that we've come up with there for uh, for the introduction to this segment. Uh, Associate Professor Jason Byrne, Dr Tony Matthews, both urban planners with the School of Environment at Griffith University. Gentlemen, hello to you. Hey Matt, how are you doing? Hello Matt. Welcome back in. Last week we were talking about housing um, in fairly broad terms, specifically about its affordability now and in the future. Um, this week I thought we'd kind of narrow down the discussion a little bit and, and, and talk about sustainability of housing um, here on the Gold Coast and perhaps apply some principles from elsewhere. It is a bit of a buzz term in terms of uh, building and construction, you know, sustainable uh, building practices, um, you know, solar energy, all, all these kind of the power, the use of resources, the kinds of materials that are, that are used, all these sorts of things come under that banner or umbrella of, uh, of sustainability. Can we start with this question today? Does um, does this city in particular reward sustainable development enough? It is, is it something that needs to be actively encouraged? Jason, perhaps I can start with you. Wow, that's a great question, Matt. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the magic question. The magic question, is it? Uh, yes and no, I think would have to be the answer. So the town planning scheme that we mentioned last week certainly talks about sustainability. We have awards that are awarded for buildings that are seen as being sustainable. But whether we reward it enough is a, is a really good question. So, for example, putting solar panels on the roof used to be rewarded. You could get uh, rebates for those, 44 cents a kilowatt hour for, um, for putting them on. But those, those kinds of incentives have been stripped back and removed in some cases. So a bit of a mixed bag. Tony, what do you think? As an urban planner, Tony, how does that make you feel about the future of uh, development in this city and others? Well, there's a couple of different things that we should be aware of when it comes to the sustainability of any building. There's a few different indicators that we'd look at, and you flagged a few of them yourself, Matt. Um, we're talking about the materials that actually go into building the building mm -hmm. uh, and how much energy they took to produce. Then we're talking about the building's own energy performance, and that's often around power demand within the building, but particularly as it relates to heating and cooling in a, in a, a subtropical climate like this. Uh, and then there's water management. So all of those factors play into the sustainability of any building. Mm. Jason mentioned the rebate scheme for solar panels. That was really helpful a few years ago, and anyone that got on that train at the time is smiling now. Um, those were stripped away, both at federal and state level. They were chipped away almost to the point of not being that useful anymore. But what did happen was there was a big uptake in demand for the technologies, and that then in turn led to um, economies of scale kicking in and the cost of, of solar panels and solar systems actually beginning to come down. So it's a bit like any new technology like DVD players or smartphones or anything like that. When they first come out, they're very expensive. They're unattainable for a lot of people. And over time, they become more popular. They become cheaper. So that's sort of what we have now with the solar panel thing particularly. And that's the main renewable energy anyway that's used. So when we talk about sustainability in Australian buildings, principally we're talking about um, 
renewable energy on site, uh, energy efficiency and good water management. So making homes um, their own independent little unit, energy unit if you like. Less reliant on other sources. Less reliant on other sources. Um, the thing is, I mean, this idea that people have that you can take any building off grid, it's very hard to do that and probably not to be uh, encouraged for most buildings because the fail safe that you lose if you go off grid is critical in the event of, say, a major storm or something like that. Right, so yes. I yes. guess the other perspective is that when you take buildings off grid, you're losing the ability of those buildings to contribute energy back to the grid. So, uh, for example, the kind of solar that's been rolled out across Australian cities has reduced the need for us to think about building new power stations. It's, it's a major benefit. If we start taking those buildings off grid, then then you lose that. All we still of have, a sudden, yeah. We still have industries that need power, for example, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, somewhat, somewhat. Uh, Jason Byrne, Associate Professor Jason Byrne, I should say, Dr Tony Matthews, both urban planners at Griffith University here for Urban Squeeze this week. Turking? Talking about urban issues, uh, specifically about sustainability and housing, I've started with the question, um, is uh, sustainable building and construction practice rewarded uh, as well as it could be? Is it incentivised in any way, shape or form in this modern era? I don't think it's incentivised uh, as well as it might be by government or by industry. Um, and part of that is, I mean, let's, let's think about this from the perspective of a property developer who's building property. They're looking at their market, they're looking at customer demand, and, and they're not necessarily seeing an overwhelming imperative to deliver more sustainable stock because customers don't necessarily demand it because they, they think it's too expensive or they mm. don't care about it or they don't understand its potential or they don't understand its benefits. So well, in some instances, and, and I'm sort of assuming on the fly here, but in some instances I'd reckon people would look at the the label sustainable and think it was kind of a a luxury item in some respects as well. I think you're on a really good point there, Matt, that some people do look at it as a luxury item. However, when we think about this kind of life cycle cost of some of these technologies and over the lifespan of the building, the kind of net savings that they deliver, it's it's a luxury not to build that way. You know, the kind of the kind of benefits and payoffs that you get in a relatively short amount of time, are massive. Mm, mm. So when Melbourne built their um, new Council House 2 building, they were expecting that was going to take decades to repay some of the technologies, that, technologies they put in there with passive cooling, passive heating, solar, um, wind turbines that, that vent the building with heat this kind of stuff. They even mine the sewer to, um, to cool the building, right? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure I is, like the sound of that. It's quite trippy. It's quite yeah. trippy how they do it. But those, those things have actually paid themselves off a lot faster because one thing they didn't take into account is that the people who worked in that building weren't, were going to become sick less often. So the number of sickies went down dramatically as people were living in and working in an office environment that was clean and healthy and had fresh air, these sorts of things. So in many ways, it's not a luxury. It's almost like a necessity. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I think Jason's dead right. Some of our research is, is increasingly looking at the, at the health benefits of, of more sustainable building types because it's often looked at as a price thing or an economic argument. But there's, there are a huge amount of health benefits in terms of, of people taking less sickies and, and generally having better health outcomes, but also in terms of their mental health. They're happier. They're more content they enjoy sustainable buildings and the atmosphere that they create more. So that needs to be understood 
when we're doing cost-benefit analysis. And a, a traditional cost-benefit analysis, and this was, this was picked up in some research that was published by some colleagues of ours from RMI2, RMIT recently. Um, if you look at the life cycle, like Jason said, then you start to see the benefits. But the standard cost-benefit analysis that's applied to buildings and construction doesn't take in these factors. It just looks at the, the major financial uh, drivers and costs. Yeah, so it doesn't take in things like human health. It doesn't apply a dollar value to them. So therefore, they don't exist in the cost-benefit analysis. If you put them in, sustainable buildings start to look a lot more attractive. Right. Is there a movement to make those figures more a part of the process? I, I, I think there should be. I don't, I, don't, I don't see much joined up thinking about it. Uh, I, I know there's a lot of people out there who understand this, and you, you'll find niche developers who are playing into this. And, and, and Jason might like to talk about one example on, on the Gold Coast that we selected uh, about yeah. that. But as, as, as an overall thing, no. No, I don't think there's nearly enough uh, joined up thinking or, or nearly as much critical mass behind this issue. I suppose as decision makers and policy makers, it's an easy thing to dismiss because there's, it looks intangible. If you can somehow harness the tangibility of this, there's probably a fair skill in, involved in all of that, a technical skill. But if you could do that, you'd be yeah, on the winner, surely. I, I agree, Matt. I think, like Tony's saying, the, the key question is how do we quantify this? How do you put a dollar value on that, that sort of thing, right? So we, we're beginning to do that around health. Um, we've been looking at obesity. Uh, we know that the kind of suburbs that we created in the 1970s with all those cul-de-sacs, which were seen as good for kids to play in, that sort of stuff, meant people couldn't just walk down the shop to buy milk. You have to jump in the car, right, to go to the nearest corner store. And that means that we actually have a city that's kind of making us sick, physically yeah. sick. If we if we factor that into you our built environment... You, you've used the word trippy before. You, you get me going all trippy when you start talking about yeah. this. But it makes it, it, it does make it does sense, make sense, doesn't right? it? It also makes an inward-looking existence, yeah. cul-de-sac life. And even... Even vegetation, there have been lots of studies done now that show that the recovery rates of people in hospital who look out the window and can see greenery are much faster than those who can't, that office workers who can see greenery have less sick days, that people who live in buildings surrounded by greenery have lower levels of depression. And, you know, if depression is costing us about $4 billion a year was the mm. latest figure I saw, then designing our cities and our buildings in a way that takes account of that we'll see some huge cost savings. But as Tony, as Tony said, we're, we're kind of not joining that quite up as well as we could. Mm, interesting, isn't it? Uh, Associate Professor Jason Byrne, Dr Tony Matthews, both from Griffith University School of Environment. This is Urban Squeeze on Drive Talking, urban planning-related issues. What about some emerging ideas in this sustainability space? What, what's the future look like in and around this? You've spoken about solar as something that's kind of been and then being adjusted, still exists, people are still into it, but what's, what's upcoming? What should we be excited about? Um, well, with new buildings, the thing to be excited about, uh, or the things to be excited about are prefabrication and 3D printing. So the idea that um, with a prefab building, your building is, is effectively constructed off-site and arrives in pieces that are connected together on-site, much like a jigsaw. Yeah. It's quick, it's cheap, uh, well, relatively cheap, particularly if you've got economies of scale, uh, and, and buildings go up a lot quicker. Um, but that hasn't got a huge buy-in in the construction industry in this country because it's, it's seen as a little bit offbeat, it's seen as a new approach, it's seen as something that hasn't been road tested here, hasn't been costed here, there's not uh, a reliable body of evidence in terms of uh, how prefabricated buildings perform in Australia. But the, the sophistication of prefabricated technologies now means that prefab buildings can be built for pretty much any climate uh, uh, and built effectively. So if you can 
get good quality prefabricated buildings which have passive design principles. What do you mean by that? Passive design principles are buildings, uh, uh, it's when a building is designed to take advantage of the natural setting that it's in. So the building is orientated to follow sunlight, for, for, uh, for example. Um, it's sealed up tight, so you don't have air loss, you don't have a lot of leakage out of the building in winter, for example. So if you're, you're heating the inside okay. of your, your place, your, your heat's not escaping through the walls and you things like that. You don't need air conditioning. You don't need mm. air conditioning, absolutely. So you've got all these advantages, but it's that idea can often be a bit alien to uh, householders but also to the, the construction industry that supplies these buildings. But increasingly as we see these technologies upswing uh, and, and things like 3D printing coming into the construction space, there will, what I, I suspect, I personally feel you'll get what you got with solar panels is you'll have some early adapters who pay a lot for it and over time, probably not very much time, five to ten years will be my bet, uh, the technologies will get so good that cost uh, uh, effectiveness will kick in, economies of scale will kick in and the production cost will come way down. No, no, another trippy concept, the idea of a 3D printed house. So it, it, the mind boggles, but I suppose the technology is there, isn't it? it? Is. It's just scaling it up. Right, and China is leading the way again, you know, with some of these technologies. So they've got building construction down to a month just recently with some of these prefabricated buildings. These are multi-storey buildings um, that can be assembled on site in panels very quickly. Flat pack house. Common duct yeah, the IKEA house. <laughs> Imagine what that would do to marriages around the place. I'm not entirely sure, but it is exciting. It, it, I suppose it's that kind of interface in, in industry too. You, there's been a way that's been followed for quite some time and getting uh, the old to take up the new, there's a cost attached to that as well. And I I think, you know, another way of looking at this as well is the idea of waste. So we've been a kind of wasteful society until now. One of the trippy things that we're beginning to think about from an energy perspective is mining our sewage. So could, like India, where they have a biogas digester where the sewage goes into a sealed container, the little microbes break it down, they generate methane, that methane gets piped back into the house for cooking. You yeah. can just use, like, use it like natural gas. But also you can run generators on it. So we may increasingly see us harnessing what we would think of as a waste product to power our cities. Now, that's pretty amazing, yeah. right? Yay, hey, make it happen. Uh, bring it on. It's going to have to happen at some point, isn't it? Uh, 91.7 ABC Gold Coast, the Urban Squeeze. Give us a, an idea. Can you give the Gold Coast a mark out of 10 in terms of uh, its sustainability uh, profile, if you like, or is that an awkward question no, to we answer? Just, we no, we're just coming up with that outside. <laughs> we're, we're sitting outside talking about that. Actually, if we, if on a scale of one to ten, if if, if ten is uh, well, whichever way you want, ten. What, can be... what would be indicative of a ten? What, give us a city that's a ten. Oh, a city that's a, that's a ten. Uh, we'd probably have to look at somewhere like Freiburg in Germany which would be way up there, a very, very sustainable green city. So but has all cycling, that there's no cars in there, it's got all solar on the roof. Yeah, yeah. huge. Every principle that we'd, we would see for as, as a good indicator of, 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 of a sustainable city is pretty much found there. But I should add, they've been consciously working towards this since the 1970s, so the Gold Coast is probably a little bit behind uh, the curve on that, but that's not to say that there isn't capacity to, uh, to catch up quickly. Uh, we reckon that overall, taking in all of the, the factors, things like health, water, uh, car dependency, food production, food production mm. uh, volunteering. Um, yeah, volunteering as well as another indicator of sustainability, energy use and demand. We reckon Gold Coast probably gets somewhere in the, the middle of the scale, maybe a five or six out of ten for its performance. It's pass mark. We'll give it a five and a half to be generous. <laughs> can, be, yeah, can do better, though. There's, there's room, uh, room to fall and room to rise by the sounds of things. But the other thing is it's, it's doing pretty well uh, nationally, so it's... 
on a, in, relative to other Australian yeah, cities. Yeah, benchmarked against some other against Australian cities, it's doing not too bad. Yeah, it's doing pretty good, yeah. Isn't it, the way we perceive ourselves? Gents, we're out of time again, but thank you so much. Great to have you in. Pleasure. Thanks, thank Matt. You, Matt. Tony and Jason. Uh, Jason Byrne, Associate Professor, and uh, Dr Tony Matthews, Urban Planners at Griffith University for Urban Squeeze.